Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Okay, today our guest is Dr. Rami Hashish, and he and I are going to be discussing a whole lot of topics surrounding high-level human performance, injury prevention, and how to age well. Dr. Hashish is the founder of the National Biomechanics Institute, and prior to starting that, he earned two doctorate degrees, a doctorate of physical therapy from the University of Washington School of Medicine, and a PhD in biomechanics from the University of Southern California. His education and skill set allowed Dr. Rami to examine human injury and performance from both medical and mechanical perspectives, And he has published more than 50 peer-reviewed publications and conference presentations, holds multiple patents, serves on the review board for various national and international medical and engineering journals, and he is on a global committee for spine and brain injury. Dr. Rami is also really passionate about the topics we discussed today, which makes this not just a really informative conversation, but a really fun one, too. And so with that, let's go ahead and get to my conversation with Dr. Rami Hashish. Here we go. Well, Rami, how are you today and where are you today? I'm doing all right. And I'm in uh, Los Angeles, California. I've heard of it. It's been a a minute since I've been there, but uh, how are things in LA these days? It's sunny. It's sunny. It's nice. It's getting getting a little hot uh, these days, but you know, we're loving it. Well, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I think this is going to go pretty wide ranging about some topics that are certainly near and dear to my heart and I think that are just kind of fascinating in general. But before we get there, I'd love to hear about how you got set on this path that you are on now. And I mean, you do a lot of stuff. And so take us back a bit on like how you got, how you got here. Yeah, sure. So I, before my senior year of high school, uh, basically during the summer, I was in the middle of, you know, preparing for football season. And uh, I didn't think I had a chance to necessarily go D1, but I thought, you know, I had a, a decent chance to, to play in college, maybe at a lower, lower level college. But then uh, before my senior year, I ended up breaking my ankle uh, pretty badly sustained some pretty bad injuries. And then through that process, it was ultimately a blessing in disguise because I ended up going through rehab and it was miserable. It was really bad. I recovered slowly. Uh, I ended up being able to play my senior year, but I was a shell of myself. I was very slow. I was overweight. It just, it just wasn't where I needed to be. But it also led me on the path in which I'm still on, which is Essentially, how do we really improve the health and performance of people? How do we prevent injuries? And then if we are unfortunate and we sustain an injury, how do we speed that up? Uh, speed up the, the, the response to that what can even be better than where we ever were in the past. So that injury is actually sustained on a trampoline, uh, <laughs> which, which, you know, I'm not, not too proud of, but, but then ultimately it, it led down this path. I ended up achieving my doctorate, uh, of physical therapy up at the University of Washington. And then, uh, I had 
while I was evaluating treating patients, I ended up having these a lot of ultra marathoners. And these ultra marathoners would sustain these really bad injuries and these overuse injuries. And from my vantage point, and something that they would commonly complain about is that it was from their shoes. So another light bulb uh, kind of kind of went off and I realized that there I shouldn't be just treating patients. I want to get to how we develop products, equipment, clothing, apparel to help prevent injury, right? So that's kind of where my mind was. So I decided to pursue my PhD and I pursued my PhD in biomechanics uh, down here in, in, in LA at USC. And during the first year of my PhD, and we touched on this a little bit uh, off air, is I went up, flew back up to Seattle, where I'm from, and went skiing with some friends. I rented some skis, and I knew that the bindings were a little bit shaky. Things weren't working too well. It was the first day of ski season. It was a little bit icy. The bindings gave out, uh, unfortunately, when I was trying to negotiate a, a mogul, and I took a pretty bad fall. Uh, ended up breaking my back in, in three different spots. So I wanted to understand kind of why this happened. What was wrong with the bindings? <laughs> what was wrong with every, what led me to this injury? And it kind of led me down the path in which I'm on now, which is understanding kind of the legal components of what happens in, in certain in injuries and accidents, uh, bringing science to injuries and how injuries are caused so that ultimately from a global level, we can make some pretty decent changes and in, in, in change, uh, changes in apparel and changes in equipment to help prevent injury and optimize performance and, and things of that nature. So that's kind of where I was. Uh, I graduated with my PhD and I ultimately down the line founded a company called the National Biomechanics Institute, where that's exactly what we do. We look at how we prevent injury, how we optimize performance. We look at legal cases and, and understanding kind of how injuries are caused. And, and, and that's where I'm at now. And the National Biomechanics Institute, that was started. When did you start that? 2016. 2016. So over these past several years, where have you been focusing your attention to kind of get, get the ball rolling? With this, you know, you, you've talked about ultra running. We talked a little bit about skiing, like in terms of products or particular athletic pursuits, where has your focus been so far? Yeah, it's all over the board. Uh, <laughs> and it, <laughs> it's really as to who gives us a call and who's interested in, in, in speaking with us about how we address issues, right? So we have kind of two different realms. One's the proactive realm. The other one is the reactive realm. The proactive realm is where we uh, proactively consult for pro sports teams, pro sports agents. And when we do that, we're usually trying to uh, figure out solutions, trying to figure out how to create a new product. How do we optimize X athletes performance? Uh, what kind of wearable technologies can we develop to help better track injury and performance? So that's kind of in that realm. And then the secondary realm is the reactive realm. That's more in the legal setting. That's when there's uh, somebody unfortunately sustained some sort of bad or catastrophic injury. And then they ask us to basically scientifically analyze how that happened, why it happened, uh, and what could have been done to prevent it from happening. And with regards to that realm, 
Uh, we look at injuries across the board. We have motor vehicle accidents, aviation, uh, ski accidents, uh, different athletic events and environments, whether that's mountain biking, football, basketball, baseball, uh, children's soccer. I mean, across the board where there's some catastrophic injury or, or some life-threatening injury or, or at least life-changing injury, and there's a legal dispute, they we get brought on. Okay. So can you give me a specific example of either the proactive or reactive side of things? Yeah. So on the proactive side, we were uh, involved with some MMA guys uh, with regards to how do we calculate punch performance and kick performance. So if we embed like sensors, for instance, in wraps around the arms or in the feet so that we can have a better understanding of how these guys or women are kicking in real time, not just when they're kicking a bag, but when they're actually kicking a person, can we actually calculate that? So we were getting involved in a little bit of that. Uh, with regards to kind of the reactive work, uh, the most common types of cases we have are motor vehicle accidents. You know, somebody sustains an injury. Uh, how did that happen? Why did it happen? Whether it's a spine injury or what have you. Uh, but we've also had kind of more catastrophic injuries, you know, ACL tears in skiing. Why did that happen? What was that attributed to? Was that attributed to binding? Was that, were they not paying attention? Should they have been able to negotiate uh, their environment better? Was it their fault that they sustained an injury or was it more a product fault or their interaction with the product? Hmm. That is a broad range. <laughs> it's a broad range. It's pretty much anything that relates to injury. Speaking of MMA stuff, it sure seems like given the last couple years, you need to tell these guys and gals how to kick without breaking their own legs. <laughs> it seems to be a, a thing going around, right? Seems to be an issue. It seems to be an issue. So like, but that seems like that actually might be something that you would in fact look at. Like whether it is, you know, making contact too high up the leg or too low or with the ankle positioned in a certain way. This is a freebie for you, but uh, <laughs> would this fall into the wheelhouse of something you might be asked to look at? Exactly. Yeah, ex exactly. Spot on. So why, why is this happening? This, this needs to stop. How do we, how do we prevent, how do we prevent it? Right. And then, you know, we'll obviously analyze it, you know, and give some recommendations accordingly. We've talked a bit on some of our, past blister podcasts just about the issue of cte and you know this is not something that i would say has become really taken center stage in say skiing or mountain biking in the way that you know it very much has taken center stage and like particularly related to the nfl but is there anything you can share with us about new findings, stuff you're seeing, stuff you're curious about in the realm of, correct me if I get this wrong, chronic traumatic encephalopathy? Yeah. Yeah. Did I do that all right? right? Okay. Yep, you do it good. So the big thing is that, you know, the concept of CTE is just for, for people who are not as familiar is essentially repetitive situations in where the head is exposed to subconcussive impacts and then that can lead to long-term brain damage and that long-term brain damage may be reflected in, in a myriad of different ways um, some of it may be 
um, just completely odd, odd behavior may result in suicidal behavior as we've seen in, in some athletes and maybe, uh, you know, across the board. So the big thing kind of to take away is, is how, how brain injury is caused, right? And how is concussion caused? So concussion relative to more severe brain injuries is not as well seen radiologically. In other words, if we examine the brain, we don't necessarily see on a radiological image that this person definitively has some sort of mild brain injury. So a lot of it is based upon symptoms and how somebody presents and whether those symptoms are associated with a concussion. On the good news, however, is that we have a better understanding of how they are caused and how they're ultimately caused is by high accelerations to the brain. And that may be void of actually an impact to the head, right? So specifically, if the head is accelerated, you know, straight back and forwards or, or side to side or rotationally, then that may be enough to cause a brain injury, right? So, you know, the common example, maybe something like shaken baby syndrome. If you take the baby, you shake the baby around, they, their head may not impact anything, but it may be enough to actually cause some sort of, of brain injury, right? So the concept behind that, though, if you kind of think of that on like a larger scale, is the concept of vibration or consistent vibration, which obviously, whether in mountain biking, skiing, or what have you, you're constantly exposed to. Um, so there's this concept if your if your brain is consistently being vibrated over and over and over and over again, the ability to withstand that vibration theoretically decreases with time, and our ability to withstand that decreases with time, right? So when you say with time, do you mean with age or multiple, say, exposures to that same? That was actually a great question because it is actually both. So with time, we have changes in our brain that makes it less able to withstand. But then also, let's say today I have some sort of sub-concussive situation, right? So I was exposed to something that vigorously shook my head and I don't necessarily have a concussion, but I'm a little bit woozy, but it may not necessarily be a concussion, right? Now, tomorrow, if I'm also exposed to that, my tolerance is way less, right? And then if I'm then exposed to the next day, my tolerance is way less. And then the next day and the next day and the next day, right? So then my chance of sustaining a concussion on day five is very different than what it is from day one. Or the potential for sustaining sustaining long-term changes in the brain on day five is kind of an accumulation of days one, two, three, and four, right? So it's both kind of this time gap because it takes the brain some time to recover, but it's also the concept of as we age, we're less tolerant to those types of those types of things. With with CTE, the problem with it, unfortunately, is that the changes can really only be seen uh, on an autopsy when somebody dies, is where they actually have to take the brain, they conduct an autopsy, and they see cellular changes, right? So you know, the number one way that we can actually prevent this from happening is education if we actually know the cause of what is what is causing this um then we can go out of our way to help prevent it right so i think we see that you know there's being a push for for helmets everywhere but there also needs to be a better understanding that hey you know you can have a brain injury without banging your head just as long as you're shaking really bad yeah we're currently running a series on a different podcast we do called gear 30 where I've been talking with head product designers from a number of different 
helmet companies. And here our focus has primarily been on ski and, and snowboard helmets, snow sport helmets and mountain bike helmets, and just trying to get clear on their own particular approaches to these questions of alleviating impacts, also trying to mitigate rotational forces. And, it, you know, so we've been talking a lot about MIPS and I just had a conversation with the one of the co-founders of WaveCell, another technology developed to kind of mitigate rotational forces. And it's been really interesting to kind of get these different approaches to to the same problem and sets of problems, right? But like we have some different approaches to trying to address this and, and uh, mitigate this. So have you come across anything other, you know, one, we got to keep doing a better job of understanding like how to not, you know, how to maybe avoid some of these situations in the first place. So the NFL is talking a lot about, right, tackling the proper way and not leading with the head. But are you coming across or finding anything promising in terms of whether it's, say, from a supplement's point of view, from pre or post findings about how we can mitigate this stuff even more effectively? Yes. Uh, <laughs> but, it's, <laughs> he says. but it's not exactly in kind of what you were suggesting. I think from the best way that we have or that we'll have in the near future that will become more more normalized is accelerometers and the use of different types of technology utilized directly within the helmet, right? So basically the, the concept is brain injuries are caused by high rates of acceleration, right? So we rotate quickly to the left or right, rotational acceleration up and down, back to front is kind of what's referred to as linear acceleration. Helmets on their standard are meant to limit and they're developed to limit linear acceleration, but the rotational component is, is not as good, which is why there's this really cool stuff like MIPS that are coming out that are helping to address that issue, right? So what is possible though, is that we can actually embed accelerometers within the helmet, and then we can have a better understanding of the real-time acceleration that the head and then the brain is exposed to. And if we have a better understanding, then we'll have a better understanding as to when we should kind of limit exercise or limit sports participation, right? So for instance, if I am a quarterback, um, and to put this into perspective, uh, the research in the NFL has basically indicated that for these elite athletes from a singular impact or a singular event, it takes about 80 Gs or 80 G forces to actually cause some sort of mild traumatic brain injury or a concussion, right? So from a singular event, it takes about 80 Gs. To put that into perspective, you know, sitting down is 1 G, gravity is acting down upon us. Um, a rocket ship is like 6 Gs, uh, you know, and you know, so that's kind of the, the, the generalized scale. If I stand up very quickly, maybe like 1.5 Gs or something like that. So 80 seems really high. Yeah, an Olympic boxing punch is about 50 Gs. Wait a second. I can get yeah, hit. Crazy. I can go get hit by an Olympic caliber boxer. And you're saying that I, I would have said a hundred percent at that level, I would be in the realm of like having a, probably a full concussion, let alone a sub concussive event. So you're saying. Yeah. So concussive. these, are, these okay. are concussive events. These are concussive. But the, remember a, a concussive event is just a, 
that's what's referred to as a mild traumatic brain injury. That may not even be seen radiologically. Got it. But then there's more severe brain injuries, like moderate brain injury, severe brain injury. That's, you know, you may have brain bleeds. But this is saying that essentially to cause a concussive event, it takes on average about 80 Gs, even though it takes about 50, G, uh, 50 Gs is about an Olympic boxing punch. So it's, it's pretty high, right? It's a pretty big number. But that's from a single event, right? So now if we have some sort of indicator that this person was exposed to 30 Gs yesterday or 20 Gs, then obviously his tolerance is going to go down, right? So if we know that, then we can proactively kind of prevent them from participating. Even, you know, there's maybe some politics and things involved that may prevent that. Uh, but generally speaking, that that would be the concept. If we are able to real time have an understanding as to what they're being exposed to, then we can now, one, limit participation, but also limit those activities that are actually leading to those events. That's really interesting. And hence the value of an accelerometer. So if I'm skiing on a Tuesday and catch an edge and go down fairly hard, but, you know, kind of shake it off, get back up. If we actually had a way to say, you just got exposed to kind of a 20 G or 30 G crash. That's where we might say, you know what, maybe take tomorrow off. Exactly. That's what you're, that's what you're, or in a, you know, in a football practice, this gets real easy to imagine. Exactly. Yep. We've got to practice at a level where we're keeping the G's down below, say, a certain number in a typical practice week. Or, and then if we do get above a certain point, that person might need to sit out the next day or the next few days, et cetera. That's what you're, that's what you're talking about here. I take it. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And, well, you know, there's, there's systems that are kind of being utilized like this now, for instance, in the NBA, there's something called, they're utilizing something called the catapult system, or some teams are, where it basically measures um, the load to the body, the physiological load to the body. How much is this person basically, how strenuous is this? How much are they exposing their body to? And if, if they reach certain numbers, they try to hold them off or certain teams, I can't say all teams, but I know certain teams, they'll, they'll try to track their players and, and practice and what have you. And, you know, obviously if it, they reach a certain number, it may be an indication of a higher potential for injury. So they proactively address it. So I think, you know, with, with, especially what's going on with the NFL with brain injury, this, this should, this should be a focus, right? You said that you played high school football. Don't know if you dabbled in the basketball realm but when you bring up the NBA, I just always think like at the end of a high school basketball season, I would be so toast. And that's like a 20 to 25 game season. And these guys are going 84 games or 82 or 84. And then the playoffs start. It is it is unbelievable to me from like just uh, being able to go out that frequently at that at that frequency and perform at that level it's crazy like somehow you know the nfl it's like well if you manage to not get knocked out or break a leg or an arm you know 18 games doesn't seem insane but 100 nba games to like actually win a championship is mind blowing to me yeah i mean the only the only change and disagreement I'd have there is that an 18 game NFL season seems insane to me also. You know, they have 16, 16 games of four regular, se- uh, four preseason and then playoffs. I mean, that's, 
that's a crazy amount for their body to withstand, honestly. But yeah, the NBA is no joke. They, I mean, they have to, they have a very short recovery window. Um, so it's, you know, it's really no surprising this year. What happened was deviant is that, you know, because of COVID, they obviously had to pause last season and then the NBA, I think the finals were in October. They had a shortened uh, training camp. Then they jumped in again to this season. They shortened the season by, I think, only 10 games or so to 72 games, but they only cut off about a month. And now they're in the, in the, in the playoffs or, and now in the finals again. So it's no surprise that there's all these amount of injuries that are happening because, you know, you're much more likely to get injured if you're fatigued, right? physiologically fatigued, you're going to get tired, you're going to have bad body mechanics, you're going to do things maybe that you won't necessarily do. You may compensate differently, you may act differently. Your muscles may be fatigued and they may give out on you uh, in certain situations. So there is no surprise that the amount of injuries this year are on an astronomical level, particularly to some of these higher-end athletes, these all-stars that are playing higher amount of minutes throughout the season and throughout last season. I recently heard one kind of counter opinion to that where so many of us have been like, yeah, it's not a surprise that we're seeing an incredible amount of injuries. And I think, I don't remember where I read it or who I was listening to maybe, but somebody was like, well, yeah, but if you look at a lot of these injuries, it's people coming down on somebody's foot and, you know, like there there was a bit of a pushback and I'm curious to get your take on this where they were kind of saying they actually wanted to maybe argue that this was just a lot of fluke injury stuff and kind of diminish the role of fatigue what are your what are your thoughts on that I think that's off base and it's kind of missing the point physiologically of how human tissue and human muscle responds right so you're always the human body, let's say something like basketball, it's very dynamic, right? You're going to jump down and you're going to land in awkward positions frequently. All, like all the time. Like all the time, like yeah. every single game. It's going to happen every single game, right? But now the likelihood of sustaining an injury in those situations increases when you are fatigued, right? So if you are fatigued now, your muscles may have a delayed response to reacting and give out sustain an injury, right? You can see these in some of these ankle sprains, right? Or conversely, if you're fatigued, uh, you may compensate and move your body in a different way when you're landing and then place greater stress on certain joints or certain muscles than you wouldn't otherwise, leading to some of these 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 injuries. I mean, that's kind of like physiology and, you know, muscle physiology going to one, right? So, <laughs> so I would have to push back on that, on that opinion. You know, the more we do, the more fatigued we are, particularly with reduced amount of recovery time, it, it's going to increase the chance of injury. So to say that these injuries are, have, there's no bearing there is, it's kind of missing the point, I think. Another thing I want to ask you about is just, we are, um, seemingly seeing a number of athletes continue to perform at a really high level, even as they are pushing into previously what we would have thought of as like, that's pretty old, you know, to be, you know, in the NBA or in the WNBA or in the NFL at this particular age. And so we've got Tom Brady's and we've got LeBron James's and the like, 
I realize the answer to this is going to be, well, it's a lot of different factors, but like, I'd love to hear you talk about like maybe why you think it's surprising that we're seeing these kinds of sustained kind of peak performances happening, or if it's not a surprise to you and what you think would be some of the key drivers or explainers for why we're seeing, I think, more and more of this. Yeah, I don't think it's too big of a surprise. Uh, I think the number one driver, honestly, is science. So, I mean, that's just try, trying to boil it down into one word. I think we just have a generally better understanding of how our body functions and how do we optimize its performance and how we prevent injury. And now that as a bunch of factors, right? How we train, what we eat. You know, you see a lot of these athletes such as, um, you know, Chris Paul's in the finals, uh, LeBron, um, Tom Brady. A lot of these guys are adopting maybe differing diets, but one of the kind of consistent issues that are, or the consistent components in their diet is that they help to limit inflammation, right? So that's important. Obviously there's obviously how people are, are training is very different. Um, but I think really it comes down to, we have just a better understanding, right? We spent, there's a lot of money spent on research on figuring out how we perform and how, how we should eat and what we should be doing to help kind of optimize the performance of our bodies and, and improve our health. So, you know, once people take those into consideration, implement them, I think the sky's the limit. I think we're seeing that now. Hmm. And then if we wanted to try to get more specific about some of these different variables, I, I don't even know how to ask this question really, but I'm like, do you kind of have your either pet favorite variables? Like, are you like, I'm a huge sleep guy, you know, and for all these different things, like for the love of God, get enough sleep or, you know, there's the training stuff. There's the, the diet in eating the right way. How do you, how do you personally kind of come at some of these different variables? <laughs> uh, well, I think the thing that differentiates the top guys is that they're doing all of them. That's it. I mean, it's not, it's not simple, right? So while I understand that, uh, you know, it, it's nice to simplify this for, you know, the common person, but, you know, I can't, I can't, you know, I, 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 you know, I can't eat like Tom Brady and live my life like Tom Brady and focus on pliability and train nonstop. I mean, some people can do that and some people just have to put in the work and they're putting in the work. So it has to be all of it and it has to be holistic, right? You know, they have to get their nutrition. They have to sleep. Some of these guys are sleeping in hyperbaric chambers to limit their inflammation. You know, they're training multiple times a day, but they're training in different ways. You know, there's something called uh, deliberate practice or what's referred to as a 10,000 hour rule. That's a key component of it all. So on top of all of these very specific health and performance ways to optimize our body, at the end of the day, we still have to train like it's a game all the time and very frequently to ensure optimal performance. So I think it's honestly, it's all of it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I've got a, I've got a follow-up question for you. Let's then maybe ask kind of the same question, but for, you know, normal folk, people that have jobs, people that might only have an opportunity to go skiing or mountain biking on the weekends or a few times a year, or they're playing in a, a rec basketball league, you know, playing once or twice a week. So for that kind of person that doesn't 
have maybe what could be considered the luxury to just go optimize for all of these different, you know, things to to operate at a high level. How would you weight some of this stuff for the kind of casual athlete or the amateur athlete, you know, rank some of these for me? I think the rank is more of like sequential. So in other words, I, I think that, you know, focusing on one before the other matters, right? So for instance, from my standpoint, it's just like building a house. You, you build the foundation first. And then once you build the foundation, you know, you build the house, you can make it look pretty and you can focus on the design and all of those types of things. So I think getting your, uh, you from like a musculoskeletal and generalized health perspective, healthy before you're competing in higher end activity is, is important, right? So if you're a mountain biker and you only have the chance to go once a week mountain biking, if you have the opportunity for those other days, you should be working on your core stability, right? You should be working on your strength. You should be working on your posture so that one, you can help prevent injury when you're actually biking but also you can maximize your performance when you are biking and you can actually go further and go, you know, push yourself a little bit more. Um, so from my standpoint, if I were to rank them theoretically, the first one is focusing on your general physical health with a focus on your core first so that you can ensure that you have, you know, good posture, your not having compensatory movement patterns and placing too much stress on certain joints or, or what have you. Obviously, diet and sleep are without question. You're not ever going to achieve some sort of peak athletic performance if you're not sleeping and if you're if you're not if you're not dieting appropriately. But I think if you focus on your core, you focus on your stability, you focus on your posture, um, you 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 work on on that first. Then you're setting yourself up at least for some avenue of success when you're actually performing athletically. Yeah. It turns out like these, I'm currently, I just had a mountain bike crash a while ago. So third degree separation of the AC joint, four broken ribs. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's so obvious, but it's like, turns out not being able to ride because of injury isn't a way to get like better at mountain biking. Yes. You know? Shocker. Like, yeah. Turns out that's <laughs> yeah, what I've yeah. learned, ladies and gentlemen. You're welcome for that one. Yeah. Sorry to hear that though. Yeah. We're coming along. We're coming along. Yeah, good. Let's talk a little bit about recovery. What are you either curious about or have you been studying a lot of recently on that front? I mean, we hear more and more, I think, these days about recovery and the importance of it, but like, can you help us a little bit with sort of what in your view is a bit of the state of the union on that front? The state of the union. So I think generally speaking, the thought was back in the day that there was kind of recovery was more passive, right? You get injured or you get something happens to you or you compete in sport, you have inflammation in your body and we're, we're kind of generally passive with our response to it. Whereas right now the focus is much more on active recovery and you can kind of see this both in athletics or an in injury, right? If you participate in a sport, the idea is, you know, you don't, you should be active. You should get in the cold tub. You should try to limit your inflammation. You could start doing some active mobility exercises immediately um, kind of to to limit the soreness and, and limit the inflammation. And even with recovery, if you're even post-surgical, you have maybe a fracture and you, you know, take your cast off, you know, your orthopedist may ask you to be weight bearing that day, right? Or if you have an ACL 
injury or you have a, even a knee replacement, if you have a knee replacement, if you're an older adult, they ask you to be weight bearing that the same, the same day, right. Or very commonly the same day. Right. So that was, that's definitely certainly on the forefront. What I think that I'm most curious about, however, is, is if we're looking kind of in sports, does recovery and does the recovery protocol, is it more individually tailored or is it kind of just this one size fits all? My assumption is that it's probably more individually tailored for the type of athlete you are and the type of muscle fibers you have and the type of activity you're involved with. But I think we're still kind of teasing some of that stuff out. Yeah. And that all seems like a real far cry from the old days with coaches who were just like, suck it up today. I don't care that you're dragging, get on the line, right? Here come the, <laughs> it's like literally a one size fits all program for every single athlete out there. It seems like that's the thing that maybe we are. And cause it used to be, you were just soft, right? Like <laughs> yeah, if you had yeah. a rough game and you know, you got crushed multiple times in a football game on a Friday or Saturday and Monday you're not recovered is like, don't be soft, get on the line. That definitely did happen. <laughs> that definitely did happen. And I think what you're yeah. talking about is like, it's not really about being soft. It's just about actually understand, like a better understanding of like, you know, where is this person? Where are you at today versus where am I at today? And if we want to actually get optimal performance and longevity, we probably can't go back to that previous model of one size fits all. Definitely not. Definitely not. And I think you can, you even see that in some of these elite athletes, right? If we look at even Tom Brady, I mean, he's the GOAT, right? And he ha he came out with his own regimen and his own protocols. And, and, you know, there's merit for it. You know, some people may scoff at what he's doing or disagree, but it's clearly working for him, right? Which is an indication that one size doesn't fit all. And, you know, you have to take kind of sometimes be innovative in your approach to figure out what's most suitable for you and your body and how you respond. Okay. Maybe shifting gears a little bit. Again, it's very clear to me that you are somebody that is thinking about and working on a whole lot of kind of different vectors. And so what I kind of want to do is just hear from you about something that you are particularly passionate about or just really curious about that perhaps we haven't yet touched on in this conversation. What would you do with that question? Sure. So I, I would say the topic that I find pretty interesting these days is something that's referred to as mismatch theory. Uh, are you familiar by any chance? I am not. <laughs> all right, so I'm so, all ears. Okay. So it's basically about the concept that if if organisms, or in this case, humans, are mismatched for the environment that they're in, how does it affect them, right? That's kind of the general concept. So if you think of it this way, right? We have human beings and we think of human civilization from a, a kind of more genetic perspective, right? So over time, we obviously evolve as, as human beings. We evolve mentally, socially, emotionally, and obviously physically uh, as well, right? So let's just focus on that physical realm for just a sec, right? So if you think of this, over the last, you know, thousands of years, we were generally considered as hunters and gatherers, so to speak, right? So we're hunting, we're gathering, we're doing all these kinds of things. And then the industrial revolution hit. And when the industrial revolution hit, what basically happened is that humans became kind of 
uh, more sedentary, and they also became more focused on singular tasks, right? Such as if I, you know, work at the grocery store and I, I box and I put things on a, on a shelf, that's, that's what I do. That is my role. And I'm going to do that repetitively over and over and over again versus right now, which many of us are, are desk workers. We're just basically sitting down at our desk for eight hours a day. We're no longer hunters and gatherers, right? So that's kind of an interesting concept because if you think of it, over time, we've evolved for something, hunting and gathering. And then over a couple hundred years, it just completely shifts on its head, which is a drop in the bucket time-wise, right? So now it's kind of, we may be mismatched for the environment we're in that we're set to do, we're meant to do something, but now we're quickly evolving and doing something, something different, right? Which is kind of why even if we're doing desk jobs, we have all of these weird overuse injuries. Like human beings have very odd overuse injuries by doing nothing, right? Or by doing very li limited physical activity. If I sit at a desk, I have carpal tunnel syndrome and I have pain in my back and I have pain in my neck and I have pain everywhere. We're, we're not really meant to just sit down for eight, 10, 12 hours in a day at a given, at a given desk, right? Well, that's not necessarily the case, right? But we've also evolved physically, now getting into kind of the elite athlete point of view, we've also evolved physically to achieve certain feats, right? Jump a certain uh, height, run a certain speed. And now over the last maybe 20 years, all of these records are being broken and they're being obliterated, right? We're jumping faster. We are running. We're running for longer distances. And basically we're pushing ourselves now athletically more than we ever have in the past, largely driven by some of the stuff we were talking about with these training regimens, science, this is how you do it, this is how you do it, and people are going. And what we're seeing there is we're also seeing these significant injuries accordingly, right? So if we look at this, these top-end athletes like Derek Rose, what happened to him? He's considered this pre premier athlete. He broke down, right? He's almost like too athletically gifted almost for his own good. In a sense, right? He's he's pushing the limit so much and his joints and his body may not necessarily be able to withstand that long term. We're seeing somebody like Russell Westbrook starting to break down over time. Certainly there's anomalies like LeBron or, or what have you, but, but generally speaking, when these guys are starting to push the limit or these women are starting to push the limit, we see this breakdown. And it's kind of like there's this fine balance in between. We're like, what are we matched for as a human, as humans? physically and from a performance perspective, right? Are we matched to, or, or certainly not matched to sit down at a desk all day for 12 hours. That's, that's for sure. Otherwise we wouldn't be seeing all of, all of these problems, but we're also maybe not matched to evolve as quickly physically as we have been in the last 10 years. So it's kind of this balance between uh, injury and, and performance that, that kind of I rack my brain about a bit and kind of like, how do we find this happy medium or how do we at least catch up from a performance perspective? Yeah. What's the answer? Have you come up with the answer yet? You should share that with us. <laughs> uh, I think, I think we're trying to figure it out. I mean, I think there's, there's certainly, you know, if you, if you see it, you know, there's actually a lot of money and time being spent on figuring out, you know, how people should sit down during the day, right? How people should, people should have these standing desks so that they're standing more frequently. It's almost kind of, uh, a confirmation that we're not meant to do this four hours on a day, you know, for 12 hours on a day where we should not be sitting at a desk. We should actually be moving. We should actually be doing something. 
um, kind of the specialization in work is maybe not the best for us physically. And then on the other realm, I think, I think it's going to take time for us to figure out a way where we can maximize our athletic skills while really kind of preventing injury. And I think a couple people are going to break through and they're starting to do that. But generally speaking, it's going to take time and understanding and research to figure it out. But, you know, there's, that's why there's sometimes fear with some of these crazy super athletes, you know, uh, Zion Williamson was the number one pick a couple of years ago. And there's certainly fear with him that he's so massive and he has so much force that maybe that may be just a little too much, or it's maybe not controlled enough that it actually may, may lead to injury or, you know, somebody like Joel Embiid, he's such a physically massive guy and he's so, you know, adept and quick, but he's also, can his body actually withstand that? And we're kind of starting to see him break down over time, right? So, you know, football is a little bit different because obviously, you know, th- that's more contact and those guys are bound to get injured with, with enough impacts. But but uh, I think we're still, still figuring it out a, a little bit. But, but uh, you know, science will guide that. Yeah, that's really interesting. By the way, let's stay on the standing desk thing for a minute. This is something that I actually just got one after, literally after I broke, my ribs. And it was like, I had, I was like, Oh, I'm going to check this out. Right. This has kind of been a hot new thing and all the rage. And I was like, I don't know if I would actually use one of these or not. Is it kind of, you know, overdone. So I had looked into this, but hadn't pulled the trigger on one. But then after breaking four ribs, turns out like the most comfortable position was definitely to be standing up. So I picked one up and I, I have to say, like, I love it. (laughs) I do. I haven't been going back and looking at data on this. If this is kind of just a, you know, if this is a placebo thing. But one of the things I really liked about the company that I ended up purchasing one from, they said the best position to be in is your next position. So it, 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 it was not an argument to like just stand all day, never sit down ever. The idea was keep it, keep switching it up. And I liked that because it seemed a lot less sort of zealous or dogmatic to me. And that's exactly, I, now I'm where I'm recording right now. Like I'm just at a, seated in my like little podcast studio, but, but at my standing desk, that's kind of how it goes for my normal day. Like it is, you're up a lot. And then you're like, you know what? I'm going to sit down for 10 minutes and, um, and you can, and I got an adjustable one, like, an, you know, that will auto adjust. And I think it's great. So again, I don't have anything to back this up scientifically other than for the last like seven or eight weeks, I've been into it. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I, I've never heard that slogan, but I love it because I think it's, it's on point. Uh, and that's kind of the idea that I was touching on. It's that we shouldn't be doing one thing nonstop. Right, we we have to be switching it up. If we do one thing nonstop, it is it's too much on our body, even if we're not actively feeling it all the time. But it's it's you know we need to move. <laughs> our joints are not are not happy if we are just literally standing or sitting in one position for a very long period of time. So the concept of 
your next position is your best. I like it. You know, that, that I buy with regards to the effects of standing desk. Yeah. They have their merit. Certainly. I think the biggest problem though, and, and kind of one of the, the issues that they found is that people buy standing desks, but then they don't use them. Yep. This is what I've maybe found. Cause I've seen that too. And I have friends who've done that. And that's why I'm actually a big proponent. It seems kind of dumb, but whether you, you know, there are versions where there's like a hand crank on them and you can adjust. I actually got one where it's like touch of a button and you can like, there's like four different presets. So like one button, I'm literally in the middle of a sentence or thinking about something and this thing is going up or down and it's not really even interrupting whatever it is that I'm working on. And that to me is kind of why I actually, for me personally, I wouldn't want to have like a fixed standing desk because there are definitely times like I, I'm really moving that thing a decent amount during the day. So if you said, no, you have to sit entirely, I'm not that into that. But if you said you have to stand for an eight to 10 to 12 hour workday, I'm not really into that either. So I, I wonder if there's a higher success rate. I don't know, but I wonder if there's a higher success rate for those adjustable height desks where you kind of can keep it moving and differentiating throughout the day. Honestly, that, that's a good question. I'm, I'm not sure about that one. I, I would imagine the answer would be yes, but that's, that's just a guess. Yeah. But, you know, generally speaking, if people actually use their standing desks, it, it's, it's certainly been shown to be effective and helpful. I have a hunch you, though, are imagining something like a bigger retooling of the modern workday where we maybe are looking at building in not just taking a lunch, but like, you know, I mean, napping for one has kind of gotten to be a trendy thing, right? Like go take a 20 to 25 minute nap during the day or, but like with what you're talking about, it's like, we might want to think about, no, like literally get to the gym during the workday or go get a run in, like break the day up that way, not just keeping it at the very end of the day after you've just sat there for eight or nine or 10 hours. Yes, a hundred percent. You're, you know, you, yeah, yeah. I mean, we just met, but it seems like you you, you got me. You figured it, you figured out exactly what's what's going in in my mind, right? There there ha- there has to be a change, right? There's too many overuse injuries from not doing enough physical activity that this has to change. I mean, this is this is an epidemic, right? The amount of money that the United States spends on healthcare is crazy. Right. And a lot of that is tied into unhealthy habits. So shouldn't we address that if we already know that is a problem? And then, you know, what's also kind of interesting is that if you look at some of this research that's coming out of either some of short, smaller startups or countries that are enacting four day work weeks or um, shorter work schedules, six hour work days in total, they found that they're more efficient. Right. Now, I'm, I'm sure that that's industry specific and there's a bunch of contingencies there but there is preliminary information that you know just if we adjust our work schedule it doesn't mean that we're we're not going to be efficient i mean if you told us if you told people a year and a half ago that you never go into the office people would think that you're crazy and that you're you're going to struggle but then here we are where the economy is doing 
okay. And a lot of people have adapted and a lot of people are actually happier doing it. Right. So I certainly think that there's an opportunity. Um, and I think it's not only an opportunity, but it's, it's necessary that it happens because people are not getting enough activity and working out for 45 minutes a day is what's recommended. Typically, like you want to get about 150 minutes of at least moderate intensity activity a week, plus a couple of strength training is generally the going concept, but that's not enough, right? 30 minutes in a day in the morning and then you sitting down for the next 12 hours is not what's considered a healthy lifestyle. A healthy lifestyle is, you know, being generally active and standing up, you know, throughout the day and moving throughout the day, right? And I'm certain I'm certain with all the research that we know, I am certain that that would reduce injury risk, that would reduce overuse injuries, that would reduce hospital costs, that would reduce, you know, <laughs> healthcare, healthcare visits. But, you know, that's, uh, that's, uh, you know, people, other people can implement that, not me. <laughs> I knew I was going to enjoy this conversation and I was, turns out I was correct. Uh, we've covered a lot of different topics and I, I think this will be a nice catalyst to get people just thinking about their own every day and, you know, their own practices and where we can start making significant tweaks to those things. And um, so I think that's really good stuff and appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Yeah, it was fun. It was fun. Well, listen, I will let you get back to figuring out all of these things and, you know, coming out. I can't wait to see you're like, here is the new blueprint for the perfect work schedule. So I, I, look, <laughs> I, I look forward to you uh, dropping that on us. And uh, yeah, till then, good luck with everything that you're up to these days. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. I'll, I'll do my best on that. <laughs> all right. You take care. <laughs> all right. You too. Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. Thanks so much to Rami for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. From all of us here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, Colorado, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again real soon.